All right, thanks for being friendly. Thanks for being here this morning. I don't take that for granted. I'm excited that you're here. Lynn kicked off a series last week for us called Finding Freedom from the Curated Life. And you may think, what's the curated life? I hope Lynn, uh, Lynn's, les- Lynn's message landed with you like it landed with me and others I've talked to last week. Please go listen if you haven't. It's on YouTube. You can get on Apple or Spotify Podcasts and go check that out. Would love for you to go take a listen to that. But we're talking about the curated life, the kind of life that's edited to present desirable things and to hide undesirable things. And this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, looking at a real example from Jesus' ministry when he tells a parable. And I think we'll find a curated life in this parable. So let's read the text this morning in Luke 18. This is God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everybody else. What an introduction. <laughs> so pointed. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but those who who humble himself will be exalted. God, as we open your word, we pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Show us who you are, show us who we are, and I pray we would respond and worship in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a time, it's hard to believe, but there was a time in human history that not everyone had a mirror. Mirrors were for the rich. They were hard to make, and they were fragile. And you'd never think that now because (laughs) there are mirrors everywhere. And thank God, right? I mean, I need a mirror every morning. Carrie, I didn't look in the mirror yesterday, and probably about halfway through the morning, we were actually getting ready to leave. And I was doing some dishes, and Carrie came up and said, you're a cute little bedhead. I thought, well, good to know. I had not looked in the mirror, and I had cute little bedhead, and we were gonna leave in just a few minutes. So thank God for mirrors, right? But when you look in the mirror, what's looking back? But then how do you respond at what's looking back? You know, as I was thinking about a mirror and how I use a mirror, sometimes you look in the mirror and your first thought is improve. I gotta do something about that. And we look in the mirror for the sole purpose of what do I need to improve about what's staring back at me? Sometimes we look in the mirror and we ignore. We go, oh, that's all you're getting today, world. Let's go. And you walk out of the bathroom, out of your foyer, out of your house, and off you go. You ignore what you just saw, and you try to keep going anyway. But I think this text in Luke 18 is inviting us to look into a mirror, and it's actually showing us a couple ways we can respond to what we see. It's inviting us to look into a mirror 
And when you look into the mirror and you see yourself, not just your physical appearance, but spiritually and emotionally and mentally, when you see your whole self, how do you respond? And Luke 18 is actually going to give us two examples from Jesus' own mouth as he's teaching. Two examples of how we can respond. Now, the first one is the Pharisee. If you've read at all in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've heard of these infamous folks, the Pharisees. Typically, they kind of come across like bad guys, right? If you've read any of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees are kind of these bad guys. They're kind of judgy. You know, it's intentional that they're painting this picture of the Pharisees because they kind of were like separatists. They kind of viewed themselves as separate from the ordinary folks, the common folks. They added more to the law than was already in there. And they thought they were being extra holy and righteous because of it. They added to the law. They separated themselves for, from other more sinful people, as you see in his prayer, right? The gospel is painting a picture of Pharisees as people who were very proud of their own religious accomplishments. They were very proud of what they've done for God and the way they tithe certain things and the way that they have upheld these human traditions that have added to the law of God. They were super spiritual religious people. If you've gotten a copy over the years from us or somewhere else of the Jesus Storybook Bible, maybe you remember the way Sally Lloyd-Jones talks about the super religious people, almost in a mocking kind of way. So you have first the Pharisee. And when we look at his prayer, notice how he prays. It's not really long, it's just a couple of verses. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he even gives some examples. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. One commentator I read this week said that it's interesting because his prayer starts off like a thanksgiving psalm, but then he doesn't give thanks for anything that God's given him. So when he says, God, I thank you, maybe a reader would have initially thought, okay, I've got a category for psalms that are just like this. We're giving thanks to God. But then he continues on and he doesn't name anything from God that he's thankful for. But his prayer actually is a picture of comparison with others that leads him to disdain. Last week, Lynn mentioned the idea of our false self. And maybe that's not a concept you're very familiar with and you think, what does that even mean? But false self is just kind of another way of what the Bible calls the flesh. This way that we try to do life on our own. But I want you to listen to an author, a counselor, a theologian named David Brenner. He defines the false self like this. It's a desire to preserve an image of ourself. It's how we think of ourselves and how we want others to see us and think of us. It's a desire to preserve an image of ourselves. If you're gonna preserve an image of yourself, what do you have to do? When you look in the mirror, you're not willing to accept what's looking back at you. You're only willing to Look at the potential image that you're trying to build and you're asking, what do I need to add? What do I need to take away to get to that image? David Brenner says when we're building our false self, we typically have something about us, maybe one or two good things, and he calls it your most prized trait. And it's not a bad thing. 
We all have good things about us, but the, the problem with our false self, the problem with our flesh, the problem with our curated and edited life is that we take this most prized trait and then we build an identity off of it. We build an image off of it and we ignore everything else about us and we try to find this one thing and elevate it and hide everything else and we build an entire identity and image off of this one most prized trait. Doesn't this sound like the Pharisee? His most prized trait is his religious activity. God, don't you see? I don't fast just once a week on the appointed days. I fast twice a week more than you asked me to. I don't give a tenth of just the certain things you told me to give a tenth of. I give a tenth of everything. Don't you see how wonderfully religious I am? The Pharisee's false self was very clearly his religious activity. And here's what David Brenner goes on to say about our false self. We live a lie when we make our most prized trait the sum of our being. Our false self is built on an inordinate attachment to an image of ourself that we think makes us special. We want to highlight the good things about us, or maybe they're not even good things. It's just things we think make us special and unique and acceptable and justifiable. And we want to highlight those things and build an image of those things and build an identity of those things. So if you go back to our mirror illustration, when you look in the mirror, you're not willing to accept what's looking back at you if you're like the Pharisee. When you look in the mirror and you have an image you're trying to build, you're trying to live a life in the flesh and present the best things about you so that you're finding acceptance, finding happiness, finding wholeness and you look in the mirror and there's something staring back in you that does not match that image, you are forced to curate it out of your life, to edit it out of your life. You look in the mirror and you, don't, you can't be honest about what's looking back at you. That's the Pharisee. That's the false self. That's our flesh. When we look in the mirror and we can't be honest about what's looking back, but instead, we feel forced to say, I've got to improve this. And that means certain things I've got to take away, certain things I've got to add. I think about the sculptor who sculpted the famous statue of David, and he said, it was easy, it was a chunk of marble, and all I did was chip away everything that wasn't David. We look at ourselves and we think, it's easy, I'll just chip away everything that's not the image I want it to be. I'll curate these things out of my life. I'll pretend like they're not there. I'll cover them up. Now, we're not just talking about physical image here. We're talking about our whole self. And the Pharisee right here is building an image, building an identity on his religious activity. But if this was a parable about you in place of the Pharisee, and there was your name there in Luke 18, Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was Johnny, and one was the tax collector. What would that prayer look like if it was your name there? Johnny went to the temple, and he prayed like this. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. And Johnny prayed, I'm not. What, what would the fill in the blank be if it was your name? What, what would it say there? And if it said, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people. Instead, I am blank. If that was your name there, what, what, what would the parable be about? What would this parable be about if it was you instead of the 
Pharisee. So maybe you're thinking, okay, Lynn talked about it last week. Johnny, you're talking about this false self, this flesh, this curated life. I believe you. You don't have to convince me anymore. I believe you. But how do I find out what it is? How can I take any steps towards discovering what my false self really is, the way that I live in the flesh, this image I'm trying to build up, this identity I'm trying to obtain for myself instead of receiving one from Christ, how do I find out what it is? There's a few questions that I thought of and that I read. Here's the first one that I think pricked me the deepest. What area of your life are you most defensive about? What area of your life are you unwilling to be critiqued on. People can laugh and joke and cut up with you, but the moment they cross this line, what was at first a lighthearted, funny conversation, and you're kind of with friends jabbing at each other, and then they say something about this area, and you immediately think, too far. You don't joke about, or someone could come to you and and offer a critique about something, and you could receive it really well, right? And it could actually be a deeper issue. But then if someone comes to you and they try to critique or offer feedback, maybe they're not even trying to critique and be mean, but if they offer feedback on your work, hey, I noticed, someone at work says, hey, I noticed you know, on this project, this area we're working on, and I think you just really missed it. And inside of you, you feel anger rise like you've never felt before. The thing that makes you the most angry when others critique it, it might show you what you're most trying to protect about yourself. A piece of your self, your identity, your image that you're trying to protect at all costs and think, you can, you can critique all these other things because these aren't touching my identity, but when you critique this, area of my life, my work, my parenting, my financial decisions, my style. When you critique my home, when you critique my spiritual life, that's too far. And the reason it's too far is because it's your identity. It's an image that you're trying to build. And if anybody threatens that image, you feel like your whole identity is gonna collapse. So what are you most defensive about? Here's another question that is hard for my heart to receive. What bothers you the most in other people? What are the things that you see in others that you think there's just no excuse for that? You know what I think most often about others? They should know better. In my opinion, if you know better, you should do better. But I don't. I know better and I don't do better. But what are the things in your life that are just inexcusable in others? Maybe that can give you insight into how, just like the Pharisees comparing himself to others, he's thinking, this silly tax collector, doesn't he know, just be more like me? I mean, it's, and it, God, thank you I'm not like him. Thank you I'm like me, and I've got this thing together. I've got this religious rhythm and routine down pat. I give, I tithe, I fast. Here I am in the temple up front, not even in the back. I mean, I'm all the way up front praying. 
And he looks at the tax collector and thinks, it's inexcusable that you're not more religious like me. That you don't give like me. You don't fast like me. What are the things in your life that you see in others that you think, that's inexcusable? I've got that part of my life together. Why don't they? And one of the lessons I had to learn early on and as we got married and our friends get married at the same time and we're looking around, different doesn't mean wrong. Now, that's not saying there's no such thing as wrong, but just because someone chooses to do things a different way than you doesn't mean wrong. So what are the things in your life that you see somebody doing something different or you see and you think that there's no excuse? What parts of yourself do you really want to hide? And what parts of yourself do you really want people to see? I think at heart, if you believe in God, somewhere in your life you have considered the whole idea of scales. I know, I've, I know I've messed up. I, mean, I know I've done some bad things, but I'm really trying to turn this thing around. I'm really, I'm really trying to, you know, I'm trying to be in church more, and I'm trying to, look, I'm going to give, and I've really got to try to curry some favor with the big guy. And really, we kind of view our life like scales sometimes. Even if you know Christ, sometimes you can slip back into that mentality, and, and really what that is is there are parts of your life you want to hide, and there are parts you want to display and you want people to know and you want God to know. What kind of person do you feel the desire to become? Like, God, I have to be religious, spiritual, smart. Lynn last week said the youngest person in the room, the person who does things fast and overachieves, successful, wealthy, the person who lives in a cool home that's like Pinterest worthy, the person who has the right tech stuff and knows how to do it, the person who's on the right side of all the current political and cultural issues. All of these questions can help us understand how we're building an image and an identity apart from Christ. Just like the Pharisee here. All these questions can help us understand how we're curating our life. We're editing it. It just means we're trying to build an identity or an image in our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own power. So if we learn that from the Pharisee, we see this concept and danger of the false self from the Pharisee, what do we learn from the tax collector? What do we learn from the tax collector? Well, his part's really short in this. Seven words uh, by my count. His part's very short. It's so short, almost, and so straightforward, we kind of wonder, is that it? I mean, we almost like blink and miss his part in the story and his little prayer, and then we kind of go, what? That's like really obvious what the point, you read some parables and you're like, I need help. Like I, I need to, what does that mean? And then some you need so much help that Jesus knew you need that much help. So then he explained it like a chapter later. He's like, hey, here's what that parable means. But this one's so, it seems like obvious. The tax collector in almost every way is compared like an opposite to the Pharisee. Listen to his little prayer. It says he's, Standing in the back, he wouldn't even raise up his eyes. So, I mean, he's, he's looking down, striking his chest, and he's saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I think the first thing we learn from the tax collector is honesty. He looks in the mirror and sees his whole self, and he is free to be honest about it. 
he has a good sense of self-awareness. He dares to be honest about who he really is, but this self-awareness doesn't just come from himself. Notice what Psalm 139 says. Verse 1 says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then at the very end, the last two verses of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 say this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can't really know ourselves and have this kind of self-awareness unless God is helping us. John Calvin was one of the major early figures in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago in the early 1500s. And he, at one point in his life, realized that he needed to write some sort of work that would summarize his theology and would actually help people read the scriptures and summarize some things that they would read. So he wrote a very famous work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And the way he opens that massive two-volume work is not by talking about some concept you can't understand using words you've never heard of. He actually opens talking about that the only way we can know ourselves is to know ourselves in light of God, and the only way we can really know God is if we also look at ourselves and then look back up to him. He starts by saying, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That's how he opens the book. John Calvin, 500 years ago, is talking about how we know ourselves and says we can only know ourselves in light of God, he says, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. If we're gonna be honest about ourselves, it must be in light of who God is, not some standard we've set up on our own. We've gotta look at ourselves in God's light. And then the darkness of our lives, the things we want to hide, are in all the more contrast to him, to his light and beauty and holy perfection. So the Pharisee wanted to compare himself with others, but the tax collector was content to compare himself with God. But the tax collector dares to be honest about himself. And here's why you can be honest about it. We're going to talk more about this in just a minute, but you can be honest about yourself. You can be honest about what you see when you stare into the mirror and see your whole self because none of it surprises God. None of it. You're only lying to yourself, not to God. We see this honesty in the tax collector, and we also see a humility, which flows right from that honest self-awareness, right? Because humility is being honest about who we are, and it frees us to actually be humble and realize we can say, humility is being able to say with a smile, I'm not a big deal, right? So honest self-awareness of who we are leads us to be humble and it recognizes that we don't have anything to boast in and we don't really have anything to try build an image and identity out of because I have all this bad stuff that's a part of me too. So I can't boast about these parts while I'm also taking an honest assessment of these parts of me. So honesty and humility is what we learn from the tax collector and then Jesus gives us his conclusion at the end of this passage. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Clear as day, right? If you choose to exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled because no one is worthy to be exalted. 
you choose to humble yourself, be honest about who you are, you'll be exalted. Because that's the way of the kingdom of God. It's upside down. The last are first. The lowest are the ones that are raised up to a position of glory. Humble yourself to be exalted and exalt yourself to be humble. If anyone had a reason to exalt himself, it would have been Jesus, right? He was God after all. Philippians 2 reminds us that that's not what he did. He didn't exalt himself. It says he didn't consider being equal with God as something that he could exploit and grab onto. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled, there's our word, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's our Savior. The one who humbled himself. The one who was God but became a man. The one who learned obedience. Obedience to who? He's God. That's exactly the point. He had no one he was forced into obedience to. A little theological side note here. Some people will talk about the Trinity in such a way that makes you think the Father's in charge and the Son just does what the Father says. You might even read the book of John and at times think that, but it's really important to recognize that the Trinity all works together. The Father's not in charge of the Son. The only reason we call one the Father and one Son is because we talk about their eternal relations of origin. There are books you can go read on this, but I just want to say, theologically, we're not saying that the Son is somehow less than the Father. What we're saying is that the Son's unique role as God was to come to earth to accomplish the plan of salvation and to show us what God is like. The earliest Christians in the first couple centuries after Christ would say Jesus is very God of very God. So we're not talking about someone who's less than God humbling himself. We're talking about God himself in the flesh humbled himself. That's our Savior. But the passage in Philippians 2 doesn't end there. For this reason, God highly exalted him. There's our other word. You humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Well, Christ humbled himself, and he was exalted. And he was given the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The path of Jesus for his exaltation went through humility. The path of Jesus went through humility. So Jesus embodied the parable that he tells in Luke 18. He lived it. He didn't live it because he was a sinner like the tax collector, but he embodied the principle of all who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's good news. And that's actually where we find the power to live out this parable. Christ's work frees us to be brutally honest about ourselves. Because of his humility to the point of death, we can actually be honest about who we are because we know that nothing we reveal about ourselves is ultimately gonna count against us. Every bad thing you reveal about yourself, you're honest about, Christ has paid for on the cross. There's nothing you have that's a part of you that Christ didn't pay for. It's not gonna make God wince like, oh, I didn't know that. Like that was bad and I had grace for that, but wow, that was like really bad. And I only brought like three suitcases full of grace and I'm gonna need to go back to the bank and get a more deposit because wow, that's bad. 
Nothing's going to make God wince. Nothing's going to make God pull back from you that you reveal about yourself. But you can be sure about your acceptance before God because of the work of Jesus. Christ paid for every sin. He makes up for every shortcoming. And he has an infinite ocean of grace for you. Christ's work assures us that our honest selves are honored by God. The basis of God's acceptance of us is not the kind of person we become. You don't need to curate your image before God for him to love you and accept you. Or the Bible word that Jesus uses here in verse 14 to justify you. God's not waiting on you to become the right kind of person to love. God's not waiting on you to figure something out or get the right identity, get the right religious activity like the Pharisee. The basis of God's acceptance for us is his love. And he showed us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5. So as Christ lived out this principle of humility leading to exaltation, he also accomplished for us the way that we can live out this principle. Humility leading to exaltation with Christ. So you are free this morning. You can be free in 2022 to not try to curate an image based on your most prized trait. The one thing you want, the one thing you're quickest to talk about that you want everyone to know that you're willing to put on your resume, on your Facebook, on your LinkedIn, the one thing you're willing to talk about when you first meet somebody, the part of yourself that you're most proud about, that you've built an identity, an identity and an image on, you can lay that down. You can receive an identity from Jesus, and you can be honest about all the parts of yourself that you're exhausted because you keep trying to cover You can rest this year from hiding the bad parts of yourself. You can rest this year. You can rest today from trying to hide the undesirable parts of your life. You can rest from curating your life today. And when you look in the mirror and you see yourself, you look back at a life of regret or you look back at sin or you look back at something you promised you wouldn't do that you did again or you look at yesterday and you've recognized the darkness in you, you can remember Jesus who while we were still sinners died for us. Not while we were starting to turn, not while you started to figure it out, while we were sinners. All of your sin was future sin at the cross. And he knew it all. You can, when you look in the mirror, be honest about who you are. So as we look in the mirror, do you feel tempted to improve? To blissfully ignore? Or instead, when you look in the mirror, do you feel like you can invite God into the mess that's staring back at you? I want you to know this morning that you can invite God into the mess that's staring back at you. All of our lives, we've learned different ways to respond to the brokenness inside of us, which, by the way, you don't need to be convinced of. Everyone knows we're broken on the inside. This passage can be a breath of fresh air because it does not tell you to cover it 
or fix it or ditch it or work on it. This passage tells you to invite Jesus into it and watch him work. Invite him in to love the mess that's staring back at you in the mirror. And we can do all of that because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension for us. And today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and celebrate that work of Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we are, I mean, quite literally, I guess, eternally grateful because we'll never stop giving thanks for this. Thank you, God, for... Thank you for a Bible that tells a story that doesn't add burdens to me, but instead invites me to come to a Savior that takes those burdens off and showers us with love and grace through the gospel. I pray this morning that you would set some people free who keep feeling like they've got to curate their lives. But instead, Invite them into gospel honesty. Comfort them, God, as they're not pleased with who they are. And I pray that they would feel your love in their heart. Romans 5 tells us the love of God's been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. Would you do that now, God? And just staying in attitude of prayer, the worship team is going to come back up. And uh, they're going to get ready to play a last song for us. But before we do that, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to consider some things. And I'm going to invite you to come and take uh, the Lord's Supper. And they're going to play a little bit of music just while we come and get this and go back and sit down. But as we take the Lord's Supper, uh, I hope you got a worship guide this morning. I want you to consider, we can stay in an attitude of prayer. I want you to consider four things as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. All of these are from 1 Corinthians 11. As we come to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper this morning, first I want you to look back. 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 25 says, do this in remembrance of me. We look back and we remember Jesus. We remember his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven where he waits to come back and make everything new. We look back and we remember that in his death he paid for every sin. We remember that in his resurrection he secured our new life. We remember that in his ascension he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And we remember that in between his ascension and his return, his intercession, that he is praying for you today. So we look back at the work of Jesus. But second, I want us to look in. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, let a person examine himself. I want you to look in. And examine yourself as you come to the table. Confess and repent of your sin, just like we talked about. We can be honest about who we are and bring those things to the Lord. Third, I want us to look around. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. This is a meal, a pitiful excuse for a meal, but a meal that unites us as the family of God. Because the Bible says we're eating one loaf, drinking the same cup, because they both symbolize and represent Christ. So look around at our brothers and sisters as we come to eat the Lord's Supper.
And last, fourth, I want us to look ahead. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus in the gospel says, I won't take this again until I take it with you new in my Father's kingdom. We look ahead and recognize that this symbolizes the beginning of Christ's work. And we take it in hope that Christ will finish what he started.